Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Talk is Jewish animal ethics. And the first thing I have to tell you uh, is that in an important way, there's, there's no such thing as uh, Jewish animal ethics. Uh, concern about animals in the Jewish tradition is dealt with fluidly where ethical issues come up. It's not pulled out as a special category where we say, this is animal ethics, I'm a specialist in animal ethics, and that's what I'm going to talk about. So there's a really important way in which we don't have an isolated tradition of animal ethics. Animal ethics is a fluid part of Jewish ethics as such. When we speak about Jewish animal ethics, we're already engaged in the interpretive process. Another way to put this is to say, we have a lot of different teachings that touch on our obligations to animals in Judaism. We have a history of engaging it as a community in different ways. And what we're doing when we talk about Jewish animal ethics is we're taking those diverse traditions and phenomena and kind of cultural happenings and we're pulling them together ourselves. We're assembling them ourselves and then we're looking at that whole and saying, what do we see in that whole of materials that we didn't notice before? What happens when we assemble the different Jewish teachings and look at them together? So when we speak about Jewish animal ethics, that's what we're doing. The other reason I don't love that phrase, Jewish animal ethics, is it sounds a little bit too small. The way it sounds like when we say animal ethics is if there's a big territory of ethical concern, lots of different issues in it, and then one of the issues inside that bigger category is animal ethics. But when I say Jewish animal ethics, what I'm really talking about is the human relationship with the rest of life. In particular, the human relationship with sentient life, with the other forms of life that, like us, have feelings and can hurt and can feel good, can have hope or fear. We're really talking about something very fundamental, our relationship with the non-human world, our relationship with every other creature in creation besides our fellow human beings that we can also you know, talk about and who we have intensive kind of reflections upon. So why engage in this work of talking about Jewish ethics? Why bother to pull all of these traditions out and look at them? Why talk about Jewish animal ethics today? Well, I think there really is an urgent need, but it, but it has to do with our particular moment. It has to do with the world we live in right now. And I think we have a particularly broken relationship with animals. There's a lot of broken things in our world, but our sense of ethical obligations to animals has been particularly damaged. And I'm going to tell a, a short story, a little bit of a disturbing story. Only, it's really the only disturbing piece, no pictures. Uh, but that illustrates to you what I mean. So my, uh, my father and I have been involved in uh, political action on behalf of animals for many years. Uh, I grew up in Illinois, north suburbs of Chicago is where I grew up in the Jewish community there. 
Uh, and so we had a political action committee in Illinois that worked on animal issues for about 10 years. This is, uh, no longer exists. And so we were very plugged in to the various kind of issues that were coming before the law around animals. And there was an issue that hit the newspapers pretty big. It was a fellow who wanted to euthanize his dog, perfectly legal thing to do, but he also didn't want to pay for it. He didn't want to go and have to pay a vet $20 to euthanize his dog. That was his own self-report. And so what he did is he just tied the dog's leash on the back of his bumper and just drove off. And this is pretty horrific. You know, you can imagine, presumably the dog tried to keep up for a while and then its body started, you know, bouncing against the pavement till it was dead and, you know, body parts were littering the highway. So people were upset, of course. I saw the reaction immediately as I said that. And uh, the state went to prosecute and they discovered nothing illegal had happened. It's perfectly fine to kill your dog any way you want. And the best the prosecution could do, even though the prosecution really wanted to go after this guy, was littering. Littering the highway. We have a society which is better at preventing littering than even cruelty to an animal which we're very sensitive to. So it's in this world that we need to talk about Jewish animal ethics and animal ethics more broadly. It's a corrective. Uh, you couldn't do that particular thing today. But the phenomena has not changed, no. For virtually all the laws we have that pr protect animals, the, the question here was, is that still happening today? I was going to sneak that in at the end as a happy ending. But the basic principle has not changed. We have things called common farming exemptions, for example. So you have a law that says, you know, you can't do certain things to animals unless it's common practice in agriculture which literally means anything that industrial agriculture chooses to do to animals, however egregious, there's no limit. As long as they do it collectively, it's perfectly legal. And this is why, you know, if you ever pay attention to people who want to show you shocking things about uh, animal agriculture, it's very easy to do because the law basically allows everything. And so through loopholes like that, if you are determined to abuse animals, you, you can do that. They don't have any legal standing. There's no way to sue uh, in our courts on behalf of an animal. You have to find an indirect harm to a person, and that makes it very difficult to prosecute. But that's a whole complicated issue. Animal law, by the way, is a growing area. Pretty much every law school in this country in the last decade has added courses in uh, animal law. So this is a, we're at an interesting moment. We're not the only ones interested in, uh, in Jewish animal ethics. So what can I say about Jewish animal ethics? So I spent some time studying this, doing that work of collecting and analyzing and synthesizing. And I want to begin with some general observations, some kind of 30,000 uh, foot in the air observations. And then I want to dig into the why of Jewish animal ethics today. What are the motives in Jewish tradition to spend our time being concerned uh, with non-human life? Why would we do that? And this evening, for those of you who are able to join, I'm going to take that in a more pragmatic direction and really take on this issue of factory uh, farming. 98% of our interactions with animals are with the animals we eat, statistically. Somebody actually spent the time to do this analysis. So 98, even when we count our interactions with companion animals, 98% of the animals we interact with are those on our plates. Of those animals on our plates, 99% of them were raised in the system that we refer to today as factory farming. Now, which is a system most people, when we describe it to them, are not happy with how animals are treated in that system, even though they're participating in it. So factory farming is the big issue in terms of sheer numbers, in terms of our actual relationship with animals. That's where it's playing out. 
But that'll be more for tonight. Today I'm going to, as I said, focus on the why. But first, this um, 30,000 foot overview. Well, one thing I want to say um, is uh, I want to mention there's an organizational location where we're talking about this. So my organization, Farm Forward, which Shmuley mentioned two years ago, started something called the Jewish Initiative for Animals. JIFA provides new ways for the Jewish community to bring its values of compassion for animals into practice and strengthen Jewish communities in the process. Uh, that is our kind of theme, and that's in some ways the context which has uh, brought me here today. So we have a name for compassion for animals in the Jewish tradition. There's a Talmudic phrase, Tsar Ba'alei Chaim, uh, which we use often uh, to refer to this. Literally, Tsar Ba'alei Chaim means the suffering of beings that possess life if I were to translate it really literally. But the way it often gets translated, you know, going back to English translations even a century ago, is this compassion for animals, animal protection. Uh, literally, it's the, there's an implied do not. So halakhically, what this is saying according to Jewish law is do not cause tsar ba'alei chaim. Do not cause suffering to living beings. Now, what does that mean? That's in some ways what I'm interpreting. So I, First, I want to begin by recognizing what I'll call the horizons of Jewish animal ethics. We have a diversity of views in the Jewish tradition, unsurprisingly, but there are certain minimal obligations that you simply find everywhere you look with anybody who talks about this and identifies with Judaism, but there are also kind of maximal obligations to animals. There's a point at which the Jewish tradition starts to get concerned if we pass a certain threshold. The opening horizon of Jewish animal ethics is that they're, they're real. Our obligations towards animals reach the ethical level, and we have obligations towards them. This really isn't in question in the Jewish tradition. As you can tell from what I've told you about the American legal tradition, it's very much in question in the American legal tradition and in a lot of the world, whether animals matter at all, whether we should give them any protection, whether they really are worth our time. But in the Jewish tradition, you don't really find that view. Animals matter. The question is how much, why do they matter, how should that manifest in life, but the opening horizon, which sounds insignificant until you look at the world around you, is that they matter. They're a part of our ethical worldview. Now that maximum, when do we start to limit concern for animals, comes in around this notion of legitimate human use. So the way in which this legal concept, Sarbalechaim, is used, is it's saying you shouldn't cause unintentional suffering to living beings. That word unintentional plays this very, uh, uh, unnecessary, excuse me, unnecessary suffering to animals. It should be necessary if you do it, but what counts as necessary? That becomes the big question. So if we allow suffering to animals only when it's necessary, which is what the Jewish tradition seems to say, the big question is, what's necessary? One answer is, well, any kind of legitimate human need counts as kind of necessary. So if you have a desire to eat meat, classically, that's legitimate. If there's some animal suffering in that process that you can't avoid, that would not be a violation of this law. And that would be the most dominant position in Judaism, that eating meat doesn't hit this threshold. But you also have a minority tradition in Judaism, which says, no, even eating animals is something which is not necessary. It's something that we like to do, but it is not necessary. And really, the moral ideal is not to eat them at all. You have that as a minority position. But very quickly to review here, minimally, animals matter. Maximally, it shouldn't interfere with legitimate human interests. And the question becomes, what are those interests? 
The other 30,000 foot in the view observation I want to make is about the form Jewish animal ethics takes. How is it expressed? Because that's rather unique. So Jewish traditions forge ethical thought about animals, as they do with many aspects of ethics, by juxtaposing countervailing principles. Instead of presenting a single view, they tend to articulate two different views that are in tension with one another and let them kind of fight it out. So one set of views I'm going to call kindness. There's a whole set of traditions which emphasize kindness to animals. And that kindness, I'm using that word kindness because it also implies kindredness. Those traditions in Judaism which tend to emphasize an obligation of, of kindness to animals also tend to want to emphasize our common creatureliness. We were all created on the same day by God, the same blessing, God says, over both humans and animals in the beginning of Genesis, so on and so forth, uplifting the parts of the Jewish tradition which bring humans and animals closer. That's one side. The other side is a principle of ascendancy, where we have teachings that talk about humans being above animals in important ways and therefore having the right to use animals in certain ways. And this tension goes all the way back. I mean, really, even before Judaism existed, in the, you, you can see this in the very beginnings of uh, the earliest stratums of the Hebrew Bible. So in the book of Genesis, first chapter, best real estate in all of printed uh, text, uh, first chapter, end of the first chapter, culminating, we have, of course, very famously, humans given dominion over the earth. Everyone knows about that one. What's less well known is the line that immediately follows that, in which God says, uh, you will only eat greens and beans. You're going to be vegetarian, which the rabbis tend to interpret as actually applying to the animals as well. So we've got, you know, according to the rabbis, vegetarian lions running around and so forth. It's a magical kind of mindset, but it's real clear. This is not an unusual contemporary interpretation. That's not an academic interpretation. Virtually every Jewish and Christian biblical interpreter reads the Garden of Eden as vegetarian by divine command. And it's literally the next line after dominion. Two things go together. On the one hand, I'm lifting you above and giving you a special role. On the other hand, there will be no violence in my ideal world. Doesn't really resolve them. The academic folks who look at the Bible strictly as a kind of historical document um, actually will call this out and say, well, it must have come from two totally different sources. Must have been that somehow two sources got jammed together. Because how could it be that one people would have both of these views? You know, I don't not so interested in what happened historically, but it seems to me it was very deliberate that both views were put together, especially because it's a pattern I see not just in Genesis, but one repeating throughout Jewish tradition. I'm going to tell you, uh, so that's the, that's the Bible, oldest stratum of kind of Jewish text. Another story I want to give that will give you a sense of this presenting, juxtavailing uh, principles, one of my favorite stories about compassion to animals in the Jewish tradition. It's about uh, Rabbi Judah Hanasi, one of the great rabbis of the Talmud. You know, in the Talmud we have many uh, towering rabbinic figures, but Judah Hanasi was such a great figure that he is simply referred to as rabbi. You don't have to explain who it is, you just say rabbi, and people know it's Judah Hanasi, even though, of course, the Talmud is filled with rabbis. He's the redactor of the Mishnah. He's not just a giant, he's a giant among giants, and that's important to this story. So the Talmud tells the story that Judah Hanasi is sitting in the front of, uh, of the city and a calf is being led to slaughter. The text says, Lashihita, that is, it's being led to legitimate, proper slaughter. But the calf breaks away, runs up to the rabbi, buries its head in his garment, and the Talmud says, it weeps. Baha, it cries. 
But the rabbi is not terribly moved by this. Sends the calf away, says, go. This is what you were created for. But the heavenly court looks down and is not pleased because he did not show compassion on living, living beings, let suffering come upon him. And the Talmud reports that for 13 years, Rabbi Judah suffered with these various, this is unclear what the problems were, but various pains in the ears, headaches, that they attribute to this incident. And they also say it's an incident that made the pains go away. So he's in his home. So we've switched from the public sphere to the home of the rabbi. And his female servant is sweeping up some little rodents. We don't know exactly what the, what the uh, species is. People think it's weasels or rats. Uh, what we know is that they were capable of being swept up. The verb is very clear. Now, if you've ever tried to sweep a mouse or a rat, you know that wouldn't work very well. They would very quickly run past you. So what exactly is the animal here? What image should we, pick, uh, should we picture at this moment when he's seeing his, uh, his servant sweeping these animals? If you've ever seen mice or rats when they are just born, they, they're blind and they can barely move. They're a little bit like fetal. In uh, other species, they might be still inside their mother's room, but they, they can't really move on their own. So I think we have here an image of a rat's nest with six or seven little baby mice. Total helplessness without their mother. That image, I think, is important to the story. So he sees this, and he stops his maidservant, and he quotes the Psalms, God's mercies are upon all God's works. And the heavenly court sees this, and they say, because he showed compassion for animals, we will show compassion upon him, and the suffering is removed. There's lots of richness to the story. I'm particularly lifting up right now the two principles that the rabbi utters. On the one hand, go. This is what you were created for. Part of what the tradition wonders is why was he punished at all? Because this is perfectly legitimate, killing the animal. Part of what the rabbi is saying, trying to figure this out. He's expressing one side of the dialectic, the ascendancy side. And then in the story in which his sufferings are relieved, he's expressing the other side, the kindness side. God's mercies are upon all of God's works. So that's how Jewish ethics works, I think, from a 30,000 square foot, uh, uh, square foot, 30,000 foot kind of point of view. It tells us animals matter, and it gives us these two contrary principles and lets us work out the details. Uh, Yitz Greenberg, uh, the modern Orthodox rabbi, puts this very nicely. He says, the Jewish strategy was to combine human activism and restraint, yoking mastery over nature with reverence for the natural order. So that's the kind of big overview part. Now where I want to go a little bit deeper and get into some of the texts is on this question of, uh, of why. And what I see when I look at these texts together uh, is there's two really broad reasons uh, to have compassion for animals, one of which isn't really about the animals at all. One of them is compassion for the animals for the sake of humanity. We have a whole set of teachings that emphasize the importance of compassion for animals for us, for our own health. Seems to be that the rabbinic tradition felt that the experience of compassion, the experience of empathy, the ability to look at another being, whether it's human or animal, and have some sense of sensitivity and concern for that being suffering, was seen as a very precious thing. And you didn't want to imperil it by involving people in cruel activities. So there's a famous 
uh, Jewish opposition to hunting, something that most people tend to know, even if they know nothing uh, else about Judaism, they may be aware Jews don't hunt. Famous uh, uh, joke that Albert Einstein repeated, the person who first said it, nobody knows, so everyone says it from, Al from Albert Einstein, who said, if, uh, if a Jew tells you that he hunts for pleasure, that Jew lies. Right? But it has to do with this tradition of concern, not only for the hunted animal, but for the hunter, it just doesn't seem like a good thing for human character to be taking pleasure in killing animals. So we have a whole set of laws, which I'm going to try to dig into, a whole set of teachings which emphasize compassion for animals for the sake of humans. But we also have a set of teachings, and these are you know, taking off my professor hat and speaking from the heart a little bit. The second set of teachings is closer to my heart of compassion for animals for the sake of the animals themselves. But what I've done is just translate the uh, uh, teachings here kind of out of their traditional context and I've systematized it for you. What I want to do now is, is show you how these ideas are actually expressed in Jewish text. It's a little hard to, uh, it's totally impossible to read up there, uh, but we're not dependent upon my uh, visuals today. Um, there's three different ways in which the texts talk about compassion for animals for the sake of human beings. One is that they present morally upstanding individuals as kind of spontaneously showing compassion for animals. Another is that they consistently repeat that compassion for animals is rewarded by heaven. It's going to go well for you if you do this. And another thing they'll say is that sensitivity towards animals leads the sensitivity to humans. So I want to go through these readings and show you some examples and then we'll move to compassion for animals for the sake of animals themselves. So the first idea, morally outstanding individuals spontaneously show compassion to, to, uh, to animals. I think the most famous articulation of this is in Proverbs. The righteous person knows the needs of his animal, knows the soul of his animal. The Hebrew word is nephesh. But the righteous person knows the nephesh of his animal, which is interpreted as the righteous person is sensitive to this, knows how to use it. I was speaking uh, uh, in uh, uh, India to some uh, dairy farmers who were working with much less technology than our farmers have. And he had recently decided not to switch over to an uh, electronic milking system. And I asked him, why not use the electronic uh, milking system? You can afford it. You have the resources. He said, but uh, it's when we, when we milk the cow, that physical connection, I understand the health of the cow and I can be a better farmer. It was just completely pragmatic for him. He had to get in touch with that animal to be a good husbandry person, to know how to take care of it. So I think that's the idea we have expressed here in, uh, in Proverbs. Of course, at a time when everybody was a farmer. We have to kind of, when we leap into the world of the Bible, we have to uh, also leap into the world of, uh, of farming. Another famous example of this is in Genesis uh, 24, uh, when Abraham's servant identifies Rebekah uh, as a good uh, wife for Isaac because when uh, Rebecca gives, uh, gives water, she not only gives water for the person, but she also gives water for the animals. And this is seen, again, as an indication of her righteousness. Going from, uh, from the Bible to, uh, to Midrash, uh, in, uh, in Tanhuma, we have Noah and Joseph uh, described as righteous, quote, because they showed concern to creatures. 
This is just the straight language of the text. Not every figure is lifted up this way. Uh, but Noah and Joseph, because they nourish creatures, they are deemed righteous in uh, Midrash Tanhuma. And in Exodus Rabbah, some of my favorite stories, uh, we have Moses and David, the paradigmatic male leadership of Israel, uh, identified by God as good servants of Israel because of how they shepherd their uh, animal flocks. There's a wonderful midrash about Moses chasing uh, a sheep for some while. When he finally catches up with the sheep, it's found a little body of water and starts drinking. Moses realizes the sheep wasn't you know, misbehaving and refusing to go with the herd. It was thirsty. And so he picks up the sheep and carries it back to the flock. And God sees this and says, because you are such a good shepherd, you will be a good shepherd to my flock, Israel. The dominant metaphor in the Hebrew Bible for God is as a shepherd. This is, I think, a very profound thing that's hard for us to grasp today. When they looked out in the world at human relationships and they tried to see something that would capture what they thought about God, the shepherd was the best metaphor. Very different than the shepherds we have today. Right? In, in the Psalms we have, you know, the shepherd leads me to green pastures. You know, today we have the you know, shepherd locks me in a cage and pumps me with hormones to increase my productivity. It's a very different kind of world. So, morally outstanding individuals spontaneously show compassion to animals. One of the way we see that compassion to animals is important because of its link with humans. So, compassion for animals is rewarded. Some examples of this. So again, I'll start with a biblical example. In uh, Deuteronomy, we have a commandment to shoo away a mother bird before the eggs are collected. And I mentioned before how Jewish ethic, animal ethics is just fluidly a part of ethics. So this is just in a long legal code with all sorts of laws, many of which are very hard to interpret. All of a sudden we've got this one on animals. The way in which it's largely interpreted is the mother bird is gonna feel distress if you take the eggs in front of her. I'm pretty much following Rambam here, Nemonides. Uh, so you wanna shoo her away before you take her eggs. Right, so we've got this principle, but right after it gives that law, it explains the reason. It says, in order that it may go well for you. Not for the animal. It's going to go well for you if you're the kind of person who does this. So we have, uh, again, compassion for animals being rewarded. In the Bavli, in the Talmud, we have in Shabbat the following statement. Anyone who is compassionate to creatures receives compassion from the heavens. And anyone who is not compassionate to creatures does not receive compassion from the heavens. Very reminiscent of the uh, story of Rabbi Judah, but generalized in uh, Tractate Shabbat. And I'll mention here, for those of you who are interested in, uh, in these texts, uh, Jiffa is in the midst of finishing a nice uh, uh, hard copy compilation of all these texts systematized in the same way I'm presenting them to you. And I'm going to make sure that gets uh, made available. It should only be a couple weeks we have it uh, to the Beit Midrash. And if you want to uh, get a copy of that, we'll make sure that um, happens. Megan, are you going to, do you take like addresses or names or things so we can, we can do that. So don't feel you have to follow everything if you're somebody who wants to follow uh, this stuff um, up. In, uh, in the Midrash, uh, on Psalms, uh, we again have a story about Noah that says his, Noah and his sons came out of the ark for only one reason, and that was because they gave alms to animals. Otherwise, they would have perished uh, with the rest of 
humanity. Again, reward. We're talking here for a moment about uh, reward. So when uh, Rambam, Nimonides, the great uh, 12th century uh, Jewish thinker from Spain, uh, interprets uh, uh, these, these rules more broadly, he concludes, quote, he who shows mercy to animals will in turn be shown mercy to God. And I'm giving you examples that can be proliferated. So we've got this notion that righteous people spontaneously show compassion for animals. That's one to identify. And that compassion for animals is rewarded by heaven. It ultimately does you good. Final idea in this category of animal ethics that is really for the sake of humanal ethics is you see in the tradition the notion that sensitivity to animals is going to lead to sensitivity uh, to humans. So for example, um, Ron Bon Nachmanides, who writes slightly after uh, Rambam, when he's comment- uh, uh, giving his commentary on the Deuteronomic Code, where we have that rule about driving away the mother bird uh, before you collect her eggs, which the rabbis are using as kind of a test case of a legal uh, requirement to show compassion for animals, he goes out of his way to say against Nimonides that this is not about the mother bird. It's not about the feelings of the mother bird. That's what Nimonides says, but Nachmanides says no. It's about cultivating the person. The text is concerned with cultivating the individual. And by teaching the individual to be sensitive even to a wild bird, they teach them to be sensitive, period. And that is Nachmanides' reading of the value of that, com- of that commandment. In, uh, uh, about a century later, uh, in Spain, um, we have this uh, Sefer Hachinuk, one of the great kind of texts of uh, European Judaism. We have the following statement. God's compassion does not extend over individual creatures with animal souls, but only over an entire species. This is one of the ideas you see, that God is less concerned with the individual animal. God is concerned with the individual human, but not with the individual animal. God's concerned with uh, animals at the level of species. Text continues, For if so, Shechita would have been forbidden. If God was concerned with each individual animal, this particular text is saying slaughter would have been prohibited. It's obviously not prohibited. So the text concludes, indeed, the reason for this mitzvah of driving away the mother bird before you take the eggs is to teach us the quality of compassion. And the word I'm translating here as compassion is rachamim. And rachamim is a really important word in the Jewish tradition. I mean, probably tzedek and rachamim are the two main attributes uh, ascribed to God. But Rachamim doesn't translate that well as compassion because you miss an important um, aspect of the word, which it has embedded in it, uh, Rechem, which is womb. So uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who I quoted earlier, will translate it as mother love. And that's actually like a more literal translation. Rachamim is the particular kind of love that comes from a mother that is connected with the womb. I mention this because All throughout Jewish texts, the ones I've been citing so far and the ones I'll turn to in a moment that really champion the animals themselves, this word, rachamim, keeps appearing with incredible density. It's clearly very important to our thinking about uh, animals. And that's why when I told you the story about Judah Hanasi, and I was describing that second incident where the rabbi got uh, back uh, in good graces uh, with the divine, it's 
creatures without a mother and utterly helpless that are the subject of his concern. And when he comes in and provides that motherly concern for those rodents with their mother absent and this maid about to sweep them away, that's when heaven recognizes them. There's a whole rabbit hole we could um, go down about this, but rachamim is the word there. Another example from Sefer Hachunuk, uh, referring to the commandment, another commandment uh, from Deuteronomy associated with compassion for animals, not to muzzle a domestic animal during its work. So what's being described here is, you'll, and you'll still see this in parts of the world today, you have some cattle, you put some grain inside a bag and you have the cattle just walk on it in a circle. And what they're doing is they're crushing the grains and getting out the seeds. And, and I'm not enough of an agriculturist to tell you all that happens, but that's part of the process. And of course, the animal is going to have access to some food because it's food that the animal is kind of processing by stamping on. And so a practice became common to muzzle the animal. And the rabbis, even before the rabbis, even in biblical times, they said, you can't do this. That's really just, that's just cruel. You've got this hungry animal working all day in front of food, and you're muzzling it and preventing it from nibbling now and again. We don't allow that. So Sefer HaHanuk is interpreting um, that law, and it makes the case that, quote, from its root, the commandment serves to teach us to make our souls beautiful. Our souls beautiful ones by accustoming us to this even with animals, which were created only to serve us. So Sefer HaChonuk, again, has a strong sense of ascendancy, strong sense of humans being the ones who are kind of on top, but still, this sense of compassion is crucial. Sensitivity to animals promotes sensitivity to humans. So that's one part of our tradition. If you want to hang that on one person's head, I've obviously thrown a lot of texts. We can think of Nachmanides in particular as championing that view. Now, the second view, the view that compassion for animals is really about the animals themselves. Again, if you were to associate it with one person, we might contrast Nachmanides and Nachmanides, associating Nachmanides with the view of animals themselves. So how do we talk about this view? How is it expressed in the text? The text don't write, you know, straight up say we care about animals for the sake of animals. It speaks in the language of the Jewish tradition. So one way that's expressed is that God cares about animals. God cares about animals. That's a theological way of saying animals matter in themselves. If they matter to God, independent of my existence, then they have some independent value. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. This is a particularly uh, rich sentiment in the Psalms. So, for example, uh, Psalm 145, which is the one quoted by uh, Rabbi Judah in that story with the calf, God's compassion is over all God's works. Uh, another example, Psalm 147, God is the one who gives animals their food and to young ravens what they cry for. And these are lines that you may have heard because they appear in Jewish liturgy uh, as well. Now that theme that God cares for animals also has an intensification in the Midrash. So these first examples I just gave you are from the Bible. In the Midrash, though, we get some cases where the rabbis will argue that the animals are so important to God that even when humans don't deserve God's love, God is kind to humans 
for the sake of the animals, a kind of inversion of the ascendancy view. So for example, in Genesis Rabbah, in the rabbinic commentary on Genesis, we read that God grants rain to the wicked uh, kingdom of Alexander for the sake of the animals. And the twist in the interpretation is they're interpreting Psalm 37, which reads, human and animal you save, O God. That's how we would translate it. Human and animal you save, God. There's no implication of it being for the sake of the animals or for the sake of the humans. But the way the rabbis tell us we should read that verse is not as humans and animals you save, God, but we should read it as humans for the sake of animals you save, God. And they have their clever rabbinic puns for arguing this. Another um, uh, example of this kind of intensification uh, is, uh, is the Maharal, 16th century Jewish thinker. In Be'er uh, HaGolah, he writes, everything, like grasses and fruits, were created for the sake of animals, which are flesh. For he gave them everything to eat, as the verse states. I give you uh, the greens and the beans. He's here referring to uh, the beginning of Genesis where God says, okay, you have dominion, but I'm gonna give you the leaves and the seeds uh, to eat nothing uh, else. Uh, the Maharal continues, from this you see that everything else was created for the animals while the animals were created in the world for their own sake. And this first theme is the theme of God cares for animals which is one way for the tradition to say animals matter in and of themselves. Another way this is talked about, and this is a theme that's uh, you know, really broadly shared in religious traditions. You know, one of the fun things I get to do in, uh, in being an academic is not just spend my time in Jewish texts, but look comparatively in Jewish texts. And you find the notion that animals, by their very nature, praise the divine as a very kind of widespread notion. And we certainly uh, have this in the, uh, in the Jewish tradition. So again, this is particularly uh, dense in the Psalms. So for example, Psalm 148, uh, praise Adonai, wildlife and all animals, creeping things and birds of wing, let them praise uh, the name of God. In the ending line of the entire book of Psalms, uh, let all that breathes praise God. Let all that breathe praise God. It's a very expansive notion of what it means to pray and uh, praise. Uh, another example of this uh, from the Talmud, from the Bavli, uh, we have a story that the two cows that pulled the Ark of the Covenant, as you know in the Midrash, the rabbis loved to fill in details in the biblical story that weren't, that weren't there. Um, they turned their faces towards the Ark and they sang a song. And then the rest of the uh, uh, sugya goes on to debate what song it was that the cows sang. There's no question the cows sang. The question is just what were the cows singing about? Animals praise God, of course. The rabbis wanted to explore how. Another, uh, and probably the most dramatic example of this is if anybody's seen the book Perak Shirah. We actually don't know how old this book it is, but it's old. Uh, it's mentioned in the Talmud at some point, but we don't see it on the historical record for many centuries later. But it's a compendium sometimes included in traditional uh, prayer books, which is collecting verses from the Psalms but it puts them in the mouth of animals. You have beautiful illustrated versions of this produced by like Art Scroll today. And uh, you know, an example is the hen is saying, he gives food to all flesh for his covenant love, his chesed is eternal. And it just takes Psalm after Psalm 
puts it in the mouth of animals, and in this way just creates a certain kind of image of this chorus of creation uh, praising the divine. So animals praise God, a second way in which we, uh, using the language of Jewish theology, say animals matter for themselves. Final um, way in which Jewish tradition speaks about animals mattering themselves is by talking about them as imbued with and reflecting uh, the divine. So again, I'm going to begin uh, uh, by mentioning Psalm uh, 104, uh, which declares that God fashioned all creatures with wisdom. Now the Talmud takes this a little further, and in interpreting this verse, this is in Hulin, it actually says, in creating each creature, God consulted with the creature before it was created, and then uh, went ahead and created that animal after conferring with it. So what I'm reading this as, as uh, animals express the divine. There's kind of a negotiation in the way God brings animals into the world uh, that makes them reflect the divine. A uh, story which many of you will be familiar with, the story of Balaam's ass. Right? We have Balaam, uh, uh, his, his, his donkey stops in the road. Uh, he doesn't see why this donkey is stopping, and he's beating the donkey. Uh, and then God ultimately opens the donkey's uh, mouth, uh, which says, you know, why, why are you beating me? You know I've been a loyal servant to you. And then the angel also opens Balaam's eyes, and he sees that there is an angel blocking the way. You know, this is a very clear example of where the text is saying the animal has a greater sensitivity to divine than a human actor, right? And that humans can actually become more sensitive to the divine through paying attention to their animals. And again, the rabbis like to uh, have these very inventive stories to talk about this. So in uh, Pasik the Rabbitai, which is a 6th or 7th century collection of uh, Midrashic uh, teachings, uh, we have a story of a cow. Uh, it grows up in a Jewish family, but then is purchased by a Gentile, um, but refuses to work on the Sabbath. Just will not move no matter how much it's beaten. The cow refuses to work on the Sabbath, and the Gentile that buys the cow is so impressed that he converts to Judaism and becomes a great rabbi. <laughs> the, the rabbis always love to make it go over the top. Um, moving to the medieval period, uh, Moses Cordovero, important figure in Jewish mysticism, uh, says the following. The supernal wisdom, the supernal wisdom here you want to see capital S, capital W, it's a name, uh, name for God. The supernal wisdom is extended to all created things, minerals, plants, animals, and humans. In this way, Man's pity should be extended to all the works of the Blessed One, just as a supernal wisdom despises no created things. This is the reason our holy teacher was punished for his failure to have pity on the young calf uh, that tried to hide near him. The text is referring to the story of Judah Hanasi, uh, which I began with. So whether it's for the sake of humans, or whether it's for the sake of the animals themselves. We have this rich vocabulary. I mean, it gets a little tedious, me listing off these things, but I want to give you a sense of just how profound and how deep this is. I could have gone on uh, much longer and under any one of those headings, you know, those subheadings to describe this. We have this ability to imagine compassion for animals out of this. Ultimately, the fact that there is not like an existing predefined body of Jewish animal ethics, I find is a very kind of hopeful and encouraging thing. It means we have to create it. 
we have to decide which teachings are going to be uplifted, which teachings we're going to bring together and have us uh, inform our actual relationships with animals. And that act of participating in the interpretive tradition in this way by lifting up certain teachings is Jewish animal ethics. I'm going to uh, stop there uh, in terms of the formal talk. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And uh, my, my hope is that the real interesting stuff often happens in the uh, uh, Q&A. So yeah, I hope that, that. This is a rare opportunity because Professor Gross is very familiar with the text, as you, as you can see, is very obviously experienced in academic critical analysis, but also is very much on the ground of empirical data, social change world. So you can really kind of fire from any direction. Yeah, yeah, truly. I'm, uh, I'm interested not only in questions, but comments and reflections. Yeah, and tell me your name. Mary. Mary. Um, are you, like, what is your opinion? Is there an actual humane way for Jews to consume the flesh of a living being? Ah, so going right for the easy questions. <laughs> Yeah, so the question is, is there, is there a truly humane, humane way to kill an, kill an animal? Kind of, can eating animals ever be humane? Is that a fair way to interpret this? So I'm... I'm into the Jewishness. In, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm sure. Uh, so I'm a vegan myself. Uh, and you know, I, grew up eating, I grew up eating meat, learned about factory farming, did not want to participate in that system. So that wasn't because of the impossibility of imagining it. But speaking personally, um, I don't want to be involved in killing, even if it's done in a very ethical way. Um, but I recognize as um, people who share my same ethical sensibility, people who do think you can kill an animal in a humane way and take that quite seriously. So personally, I side with, I'd, I'd rather bow out. But I don't have so much confidence in that position that I would say it's the only way to be ethical. And uh, I do a lot of work um, with farmers who raise animals for a living because I'm trying to replace the factory farm system because it's so cruel. I mean, I think anyone can agree if an animal's going to suffer every day of its life and have a horrible death, uh, it would be better that it, you know, had a good, robust life and then had one bad day. That would certainly be preferable. So a lot of my energy is uh, focused on trying to champion uh, systems that can displace factory farming that are more humane. And so I'm working there with people who believe they can kill animals uh, humanely. And what I can say is, that, you know, I find these ultimately people of great, they're rare, but they're people of great integrity whom I identify as like uh, folks struggling with ethics. So I have a moral intuition there, um, but it doesn't go to the point where I would insist upon it being the only way to be ethical in the world, which I think means the answer is yes. I think there are, you know, humane ways to kill, but um, not, not for Aaron Gross. I have a follow-up follow question. Sure. Then your standard kosher meat that you find in the grocery store that comes from these factory farms, should, should Jews be eating that? No. Should Jews be supporting anything that's not that humane yeah. family farmer that cares about the cow? Yeah, I want to answer very clearly. So the question uh, is, uh, you know, today we have a kosher industry that's completely uh, tied up with uh, factory farming, and so are there... Uh, animals that uh, I would be comfortable eating coming out of the mainstream, I'm going to add that qualification, the mainstream kosher industry. Um, and the answer is, is, is really clearly no. Um, and I'm pretty sure anybody who looks into it is, is uh, going to say no. Um, it's not in great shape right now. It's really not in great shape. It's um, a particularly kind of dark moment for, uh, for the kosher world. It's not any more dark than it is for the non-kosher animals. 
um, but it's also not, um, not any better. Uh, there are a couple anonymous, uh, anomalous uh, cases, like the gathering of chickens ends up being done slightly uh, more humanely in some kosher plants, but then there's also uh, things that end up causing a little bit more distress in uh, kosher plants because animals are not rendered uh, unconscious uh, before shechita is uh, performed. So on whole, I would say it's a wash. That is, the kosher industry looks ultimately just like uh, the secular uh, industry in terms of its level of concern for animals. Um, there's people trying to change this. Uh, so, for example, one of the people who works for uh, the Jewish Initiative for Animals, Yadidja Greenberg, uh, who's a shochet, uh, he, uh, you know, was someone who grew up eating meat, very much uh, meat, uh, very important to him, learned about factory farming, like me, he wanted to have nothing to do with it, but unlike me, for him, it was important to eat animals. So he was so serious about this that he said, well, I'm only going to eat animals I shecked myself, went through the trouble of becoming a shochet so that he could uh, eat animals again. Uh, and he is uh, working very actively and quietly with uh, you know, parts of the kosher world to try to bring these values into that world. There's a lot of people that would like to see that happen. But the reality today is that, um, yeah, kosher doesn't look very Jewish. It really doesn't look very Jewish. It, 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 uh, the, the really sad moment for me, in 2004, there was a big undercover investigation into it. At the time, it was the largest uh, Glatt kosher slaughterhouse, basically the largest beef kosher slaughterhouse in the U.S., called Agriprocessors. It was in the middle of Iowa in a town called Postville. Some of you may have heard of this because it became a little bit of a national story. Uh, but in 2004, when this video was taken, it was, uh, it was absolutely worse than non-kosher slaughter. It was, so this is the biggest, um, I'm not even, if somebody wants to know, I'll describe it after the talk, but I don't even want to describe to you what they were doing to every single animal, because it's just that disturbing. But you can easily Google this and find this out. Agriprocessors, uh, PETA investigation will uh, we'll get it to you. But let's just say, I know that uh, any, anybody would be disturbed by this. This wasn't a borderline. Um, bit of cruelty, and uh, when uh, I and others went to the kosher authorities and said, surely, you know, this is a bad apple. Surely you want to distance yourself from this horrible kosher slaughterhouse so that you can say, you know, kosher slaughter has to at least be, you know, following U.S. law. You know, let's not even, you know, go to being uh, perfectly humane. Um, and they were very clear. Uh, uh, totally divorcing this entire tradition, which has both legal and story elements, saying it has absolutely nothing to do uh, with us in the kosher industry. They didn't deny that there's a Jewish tradition of animal protection, they just denied its relevance. And the um, uh, vice president of the Orthodox Union, Rabbi Tzif Hirsch Weinberg, was quoted in the New York Times saying, this is the first time I've ever seen this statement appear, and the entire, my entire attempts to study, you know, all throughout like, the last four or five hundred years of like responsive literature, I've never heard this said, even egregious cruelty to animals does not disqualify the meat as kosher. His word was egregious, because he knows you can't describe what happened at agroprocessors as just minor cruelty. Now, I don't think that's consonant with the history of uh, uh, how kosher authorities have looked at animals. There is a, definitely a tradition, a European tradition. And if you speak to older folks who have shochets in their memory or in their family, 
Uh, I've heard tons of stories from people about real tremendous sensitivity towards you know, the backyard chicken that was you know, slaughtered when they were young. You know, it's tended to disappear from our lives these days, but it's not you know, outside of historical memory. That's a part of American uh, culture. A Temple Grandin, how, have people heard of Temple Grandin? Temple Grandin is like the most famous animal welfare scientist in the world. Um, one, because she's incredibly effective. She's de designed like 75% of the cattle slaughter facilities in the US and a significant percentage in the world have been designed by her. She's just very good at what she does. But she's also autistic, uh, which is just interesting. Uh, and she, uh, she connects her autism with her ability to better read animal um, signals. Uh, if you talk to her about this, she has like a 30-year history working with slaughterhouses, right? And specifically working with slaughterhouses uh, to make them more humane. Uh, she's always been um, a kind of champion of uh, kosher slaughter done right. It is when she's seen kosher slaughter done really well. She says the animal appears to not uh, experience the cut. It's the phenomenon of like a paper cut, like where it's so sharp you don't even realize you're bleeding, and then the animal just kind of loses conscious and she thinks if you do that right it can be very very humane and she's a you know not Jewish she's a scientist I don't think she has any other interest in championing it but her story about her experience with the kosher industry is the old rabbis used to care and the current rabbis I'm quoting her just don't give a damn uh, she's she doesn't mince uh, words so her experience is that there's been a transformation um, you know, so this is largely to the right of orthodoxy that control the kosher industry, so they're not representative of uh, most uh, Jewish communities or even most orthodox communities. Um, and uh, in that world, uh, there really has been a disavowal um, of concern for animals, uh, despite the rich tradition, despite many people in that community not approving of that. That's the reality. So yeah, the answer is very unequivocal. The current kosher industry, if that's all you're looking for, um, is problematic. Uh, there are uh, a few alternative places you can look uh, where it uh, uh, meets that second bar. Yeah? I'm the DJ tomorrow. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was told by someone that dogs uh -huh. in particular do not have souls. Uh-huh. So how does this, how does this, the question of animal souls in the Jewish tradition? So at one level, the Jewish tradition is very clear, animals have souls, uh, you know, nefesh. Uh, yeah, so one level is very, very clear. In the medieval period, following Christian thought, so this is kind of Jewish and Christian thought together, but perhaps really more driven by uh, Christian thought, you get this hierarchy of souls, right? And then you have like the animal soul, the emotional soul and the rational soul, right? And then what they'll say is, so we share with animals uh, the kind of bodily soul, and you know, maybe they'll also say, usually they'll say, we share the emotional soul with animals, but the rational soul, only humans have. So dogs would not have the rational soul. And this tradition will also tend to say, and the soul that really matters is the rational soul. So from like, you know, 1500s kind of forward, you do have a certain stream in Judaism, not an ancient stream, but that will deny animals souls, but even that's a little more nuanced. But in terms of like biblical tradition, rabbinic tradition, animals have souls, certainly dogs have souls. So then how do we justify by putting a dog down? I'm not sure we can uh, in that tradition. You know, the, I mean, how could you if you, you know, if you want to? It's that principle of uh, for legitimate human purposes. What's a legitimate human purpose? Now we know <laughs> euthanasia. You're talking about euthanasia, yeah. 
Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So at one level, we'd end up in a debate which isn't about animals anymore, but about the ethics of mercy killing, right? And, yeah. there's, and there's that question. But there's also that question of legitimate human interest. So one of the disturbing things I've learned is that um, one of the most common times to euthanize the elderly but not you know, suffering family dog is right before families go on vacation. Right? Because you want to go on vacation, you don't want to have to put Fido in uh, the kennel, so why not just put Fido down? And I've learned about this from psychologists who are often dealing with the trauma you cause to the children by euthanizing the dog and then going on the trip. And they're like trying to deal with the loss of their, uh, their companion. But in that mindset, I mean, I'm, I, this again, I'm, my professor had is on. I don't want this to be a part of the Jewish tradition, but it's there. That can be a legitimate human interest. It's more convenient to you to kill the animal, so you, you kill the animal. Uh, and that doesn't count as cruelty in a certain way of thinking because there's a benefit to you. It's not you know, wanton. Uh, and that, that's there. That's in the Jewish texts as well. But I think I share your uh, being disturbed by it. Yeah, and tell me your name. Pam. Pam. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that's right. There's a lot of um, conditioning. And then, could we talk a little bit about the personal health issues around being vegetarian? Because that has been my struggle. Sure. I struggled in and out of vegetarianism. My hair started to, started to fall out. I got scared. And um, now I'm back in a place of really wanting to make that shift back into plant eating and stuff. Yeah. I Yeah, yeah. No, people do struggle. So just to uh, uh, repeat the question, one is your uh, observation that people who are deeply passionate about protecting companion animals like dogs go and rescue the dog and then go grab a, a burger afterwards, what to kind of uh, make of that, and then some uh, thoughts on the kind of health and pragmatic issues of trying to make a switch towards uh, vegetarianism. So yeah, we have, you know, in... Um, in the kind of world of people who deal with animal protection professionally, which is, you know, it's uh, not the large world, but it is a part of our charitable world. Um, sometimes people have the impression that like lots of money is given to uh, animal charities. It accounts for 1% of charitable giving goes to animals. Um, now 1% of charitable giving is still a lot. So we have $200 million a year plus organizations in the United States. Humane Society of the United States and the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals both have around 150 plus million dollars they spend each year. They're big charities, um, but animal charity as a whole is still a, a pretty modest um, space. But we've got this professional space, and so this issue, I've seen this issue play out in a lot of different ways. And I'm bringing up that background to tell the story of uh, HSUS. So the Humane Society of the United States prefers to go by its acronym, HSUS. People have heard of the Humane Society. Not necessarily HSUS, but now you have. So HSUS about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now, um, had a change in president. 
uh, and uh, got a young, or, or CEO, I believe is the title. Uh, but the board brought on a uh, younger uh, CEO than they had had in the past, a fellow named Wayne Paselli, as uh, a graduate of Yale Law School and was a vegan. Uh, I had never had somebody who was a vegan running uh, the Humane Society, which had been you know, really focused on companion animals, wildlife issues. By the way, that 1% of money which does go to animals is virtually all to companion animals uh, and to uh, wildlife. The percentage of charitable dollars that go to help farmed animals, about nine billion a year killed in this country, I mean, many, many times all of other animals combined, um, really is statistically insignificant. Statistically insignificant. You know, it's maybe 20, 30 million dollars a year or something like that is given. Just doesn't even show up in the percentage. So HSUS had been in that world, the animal welfare world of caring about dogs and cats and wildlife. Um, and they get this new CEO who wants to bring it in a new direction. And the first thing he did was change all the meals, made them vegan, right? No change in policy, still 99% of the money being spent on dogs and cats and wildlife. Um, but he changed the meals and got a lot of pushback. <laughs> Uh, but stuck with it. Now it's normal. 15 years later, why would HSUS serve meat at their events? Um, now, local humane societies haven't necessarily made that transition, but it's happened. So I offer that as kind of a hopeful, uh, hopeful thing. After it started to make sense, it made so much sense. How could it have been otherwise? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about what I would experience. I don't know what anybody else does here. How I would experience. If I saw a, a mouse in my house, I would be out of my house. If I saw, I've seen, I would I'm not sure where I came from. I don't like I saw a, a, well, everybody knows in my family, I have a phobia with moths. I would, I mean, my father had a business. I was working in the store with him. Moth was in the store. I didn't care if there was a hundred customers. I would be out until that moth was dead. And if you ask me today, I walk into the butterfly exhibit. Okay? But if there's a, a, a bug or a roach or an ant, I have no problem. A spider, anything like that, I have no problem. There's no humanity. There's no humane to me. In it. So yeah. how do you justify having an ant? If you're here, you would have. You're, you're in a. They're serving food. And you would bring. Would you bring an exterminator? Uh, so pretty much everyone has to deal with this, right? Unless uh, you just don't pay attention, you live in a place which probably uses some sort of extermination technology. So I'm in that world. So I don't find a way to extract myself from that world. But I have deep discomfort with it. So if you, I don't mean to be personal, but I'm yeah. going to be. So if you had roaches in your house, on your countertop, in your toaster oven, in your ants, because the kids left their lollipops out or whatever, she's apologizing for her mother. I have, I have, I can, I can, because I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had some roach issues recently. So you're, you're, you're hitting a button. Yeah. So uh, you know, I haven't had any, uh, I haven't had to deal with this for a couple years, but the last couple months, the cockroaches have learned my house is a safe zone, and uh, a couple have uh, popped up, uh, and I can tell you there were three of them. Uh, two of them I took outside. Uh, one of them I smashed. Um, but I also know I don't have to sweat this too much because my condo association is going to do the extermination and they'll disappear. I don't, I'm relieved of making that decision. But you know, are you pointing to this as you know, a point of tension? Yeah, there are times when we end up in real conflict with, I mean, there's times, you know, we, we would kill other people. 
You know, they're, 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 you know, we have self-defense. And I think, to me, that's like the realm of self-defense. So as a you know, 20-year vegan, active in this space, dealing with cockroaches, and this is typical of people, you know, we understand that that's a, a necessity. I would also say, though, that there's an opportunity for you to maybe feel a little bit of it sounds like what your daughter feels. Uh, you know, there, this is strictly self-interested. This is the first part of the. This is the first part of the talk. Sensitivity to animals is good for your soul. Like I actually believe I experienced this. I mean, it's really easy to do with my dog. It was really hard to do with a cockroach. And you know, in the last month or two, I'm confessing. I just, you know, pot on the cockroach. I made sure it was quick. Uh, so I, I'm not like finding it hard to relate to you. Um, but. You know, what I wished for myself in that moment is that, you know, I could be the sort of person which somehow wouldn't even be bothered um, by this and only because of health issues would I do it. But I didn't wait till it was a health problem. I just wanted the cockroaches out. I'm sorry, you've had your hand up for a while. Okay. Tell me your name. Marie. Marie. Um, there's a, uh, this is kind of off of my field, but it's a story that Dennis Prager tells to, that he thinks exemplifies moral decadence nowadays. You ask people, if your dog was drowning and a, and a human being you didn't know was drowning, who would you go to first? And it exemplifies human decadence that you would consider going for your dog first. Yeah, yeah. So I have, I have so the, the and you're, you're asking, what, what do I think of that? Yeah, so the, so the question, to repeat it for, uh, for our podcast, is uh, Dennis Prager uh, illustrating moral decadence by saying we have uh, uh, your dog and a stranger drowning, and uh, human beings today would go for the dog, and that's an illustration of, of moral decadence. One thing I can say, it's an old idea. It's an old idea. It's been around. Um, so you have this in uh, you know, medieval Jewish texts reflecting on uh, too much concern for animals as a sign of moral decadence. So it's an old thought experiment. Um, to that thought experiment, I would say, I don't think it's in any way illustrating moral decadence. It's illustrating the way empathy works. And it's, it's illustrating the way we have kind of expanding levels of concern. Um, I mean, all of us know in this world there are human beings in the most extreme situations and here we are not addressing them and dealing with their ordinary needs. We don't see that as a great sign of moral decadence. We see that as a complicated situation. Throughout all of our evolution, I had no ability to help children across the world. Now I have the ability. I can take money out of my savings account, give, leave me nothing for retirement, and immediately save those people in, in need. You know, at relatively modest risk to myself. So I end up in a you know uncomfortable retirement situation, but these people are being tortured to death by warlords. You know, it's not, uh, but. I care more for myself, I care more for my mother, I care more for these people. So I think it's a trick. It is, it's playing off of very profound and normal human emotions um, and pretending like the culprit and the problem is concern for animals. When really what that story illustrates is the challenge of uh, having more concern with those beings that are close to us and it's really not related. People would also save their own kid over three or four people. You know, if there's three or four people chained together over there and my own child, there's going to be that kind of, uh, you know, impulse. Um, I think it also illustrates something about ethics that I would agree with, which is that sometimes ethics requires us to make decisions that go against our natural empathy. We have to kind of expand the universe. If that was the point he was making, 
sure. You know, there's times we have to do that. Yeah. Um, I was curious if in the organic, if factory farming is a problem there with the harshness and, and Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And so maybe give me a little bit uh, opportunity to speak about the, the health stuff too. So, um, so organic, in terms of its like origins, you know, 60, 70 years ago, it was connected with farmers who were interested not just in less pesticide and less use of certain kind of destructive technologies, but also included like uh, uh, opposition to factory farming as part of their ethos. As it became a massive success uh, in terms of scale, its scope narrowed, and it really became about, uh, you know, are you using pesticides and certain kinds of artificial fertilizers? So with most of the rulings for being like organic uh, eggs or chicken or beef, the only thing it's regulating is the animal feed and not the actual conditions of the animals. Now, this is in a moment of transition, however. So there's been a lot of people bothered by this. That is, they were buying their organic eggs or their organic chicken or their organic beef with some notion that this also included um, prohibition on confining the animals in small spaces. So you know, most, virtually all, organic eggs are coming from caged uh, hens. You know, unless it says otherwise, you can assume that there are you know, five or six birds in a cage about the size of like a folded newspaper. Uh, you know, like one, uh, a folded newspaper is the old example we used to use. Now we say, you know, one chicken per iPad. Uh, either way to uh, think about it. I, you know, it's funny realizing the way these analogies change. Uh, but that system, no, no problem for the organic stuff. As long as that feed is organic, uh, those can be, you know, birds crammed into cages with their beaks cut off and everything. But people were pissed about this. Um, and they did studies. They polled people and they said, okay, when you go and you buy an organic egg, what do you think it means? And lo and behold, about 85% of people reported they thought it meant the animals weren't in extreme confinement. And so that information was taken back to the federal government through a big lobbying process. And there were a whole series of changes made to the organic rules. And they were about the end of Obama's presidency. They were about to be rolled um, into uh, the organic standards, which would have meant that I could have answered your question by saying, yes, if you buy organic, welfare will be slightly higher. But I can't answer that way because Trump stopped all that. And uh, that's just where it is right now. So we, th that is, we went through the process, bipartisan process, getting the organic rules changed to incorporate, still pretty minimal, but incorporate some basic animal welfare stuff. Uh, but that's been totally stalled. Yeah, it's pretty much, with, with beef organic ends up meaning a little more. It really ends up being like very nuanced um, distinctions in the, in the wording of it. But with beef, it ends up, usually beef, it does correlate with better welfare, but not necessarily. With chicken and eggs, it's not even really correlated. Well, when you have the issue of like antibiotics with beef, and then they don't administer antibiotics if they're organic, and therefore the animals can suffer more. Yep, you got a reverse issue. So yeah, tell me your name again. Mary. What Mary was saying is another kind of concern. So this is, um, you know, where, where things go awry. So people don't want antibiotics in their food, un understandably. But in one level, you don't need to worry about that. No matter how crazy factory farm pump with antibiotics your animal is, they do wait for those antibiotics to leave the system before uh, they sell it to you, uh, right? A antibiotics are really something to worry about because if you're having to feed antibiotics to animals all the time, there's only one real explanation for that. Don't let people BS you. Why do you take antibiotics? Because you're sick and they make you feel better. 
That's why they give the antibiotics to the animals. The industry tries to obfuscate this and act like, well, we don't know why, but we give them antibiotics and they grow better. It's very mysterious. Well, you know, if you ever give your kid antibiotics, he feels better, he runs around, he walks, you know, and it produces better quality uh, meat. It's that straightforward. The animals are sick. So virtually, it's bad news, guys. Virtually all chickens, virtually all eggs. Uh, it's not as dark uh, in the beef industry. Pork industry is also, you know, virtually all uh, being fed antibiotics in their feed, subtherapeutically. They don't wait for them to get sick. They know they're going to get sick. They put the antibiotics in the feed, and that is indeed a big problem. But human beings who wanted to support forms of agriculture that didn't require antibiotics, we weren't very sophisticated in what labels we looked for. We just looked for antibiotic-free. Don't pay any attention to the real underlying problems. You know, why are they getting sick in the first place? And that's created a secondary problem, which Mary is pointing to, which is that it now incentivizes farmers not to treat sick animals with antibiotics, which has always been done and is perfectly harmless, and we have no evidence that it causes uh, trouble for people. I have a cow. It gets the antibiotics when it's sick. Eight months later, it's eaten, or whatever the waiting periods are. That doesn't, we, we don't have any reason to think that poses a human health threat. We do have reason to think it's a threat to human health that you have nine billion birds in this country who are sick and miserable in confinement systems and being given antibiotics. The health threat there is our antibiotics are failing to work. You know, the antibiotic resistance is largely an issue driven by factory farming and is a major health concern. Yeah? Uh, two questions. Firstly, um, in the new clean meat movement, um, do you believe we should be as invested in the welfare work or that we should shift strategies towards, towards the clean meat movement? Yeah, so great. So Shmuley's asking, what about the clean, clean meat movement? Clean meat, for those who haven't heard the phrase, is being used uh, to refer to uh, cultured meat, meat that's grown from cells. So we're actually taking like a you know, cell from an Angus cow and in a Petri dish, growing it into a, a chunk of meat. And I'm told in 2018, the first clean meat product is going to hit the markets. Hampton Creek is, uh, is promising this will happen. I don't know if that will happen, but it's soon. Most of the places are saying within the next five years. So this is going to be something uh, many of us will see unfold. Uh, is how are people going to react to this? Uh, I can eat actual meat, but it's not actually produced by an animal. Um, and if I'm hearing your question right, it's should, be we, should we be just putting all of our kind of energy into promoting clean meat and other forms of meat that don't require animals, or should we be putting some energy into trying to improve the lives of animals well, in systems? All or nothing, but by, should, the, should the emergence of that movement affect the way we do our welfare? Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it should. Okay, great. So I think it should affect us. Um, in that I think this is just the, a big opportunity to reduce the barrier um, to ending factory farming. So I think uh, shifting a significant amount of resources towards clean meat, uh, towards plant-based meat, um, makes sense. Um, what I can also say is that's already happened. Americans love technological solutions to things. So when you wave a technological solution before uh, activists and donors, they are real keen for it. So I actually think we have plenty of, in terms of the modest resources of animal protection advocates, I think a significant portion of those are already directed towards promoting plant-based meats, that is your average veggie burger or, you know, fake chicken nugget. Um, but I think we should also be cautious, I'm just a little bit skeptical of um, technical solutions to this uh, problem in general. The technology has a way of surprising us. For example, it's not medium they grow that clean meat in. 
is you've got to put something in the petri dish for the cell to uh, absorb, could come from like fish, ground from the ocean or thing like that. So it's complicated. My second question, and just being mindful we have 10 minutes left, uh, is can you just give us a little breakdown quantitatively and qualitatively on where the most suffering is happening? Meaning among, uh, you, you quoted 9 billion birds, for example. Yeah, cities. yeah. Um, dairy industry, meat industry, various types of meat industry, fish, I mean, Where's the misery? Yeah, so the, the misery is greatest where the regulation is least. So in many ways, kind of uh, uh, you know, surprisingly, um, the fishing industry is where it's just like anything goes. Just pull a bunch of creatures out of the ocean, drop them on your deck, and let them suffocate to death. Uh, there's just virtually no regulation. Um, and I was really stunned. So uh, you know, I'd been a vegetarian for a long, long time. Um, and you know, I wasn't eating fish. I thought you know, bad things happen to fish too. But when I did the research on the fishing industry uh, with uh, Jonathan Safran Foer for his book um, Eating Animals, which I um, you know highly recommend if you want to read a very readable, like deep dive uh, into this stuff. What was most shocking to both of us was just how bad um, the sea animal industry was. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by using the example of uh, shrimp. So shrimp would be on my uh, would have previously been on my list of, well, you know, they have pretty simple needs, so maybe they don't suffer that much. Uh, I still think that's probably true, but in many uh, shrimp operations, most of what they catch is bycatch, meaning to get the shrimp harvested wild, they have to scoop up a bunch of other creatures. And in some of the largest shrimp markets, so I'm not going to the obscure ones that are worth, I'm just looking at some of the largest uh, wild shrimp um, gathering, the bycatch rate is in the 90%, often as high as 98%. So when I have my two little shrimp on my plate, I can imagine 98 other uh, pounds of animals um, that uh, were just thrown back dead into the ocean uh, in the process of catching them. Uh, so sea animals, deeply problematic, almost completely unregulated. In terms of land animals, which is generally what we're asking about when we ask about this, it's going to be chickens have it the worst. Uh, the chickens that uh, we, we take their eggs suffer worse than the chickens who, whose bodies we take because they're alive longer. The chickens we eat, they're only around like 40 days. So they're pretty much infants. They don't manifest a lot of the suffering and health problems they would manifest uh, if they were in these distorted conditions allowed to live longer. Males. Um, pardon? Males. Uh, so, but in the, and in the egg industry, well, this, so that's the uh, broiler industry is both males and females. And then in the egg industry, of course, it's only female birds that lay eggs. So all the males are just immediately uh, exterminated. They typically toss them into something that looks like a, a wood chipper. It's like a macerator. So they're just literally um, people just all day long looking at the chick, throwing them either down a chute that takes them into egg production or into a, a grinder that turns them into uh, feed. And that's 100% of your uh, egg industry, no, uh, no exceptions to that particular um, piece of it. But the egg birds suffer work because they're alive for two years. They're alive for two years in that cage. You have, they, are li they live long enough that you have a regular problem in the industry of their claws growing into the um, wire mesh. And so when they're trying to get the birds out, you know, they have to like, actually spend more hours like, you know, pulling off the toenails. And, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's really insane. I want to go back to, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be shocking. I mean, this is a big problem for people who want to talk about these issues because we say anything that's true and it sounds like 
you know, that just can't be, that's just so crazy. How could we possibly kill every single male chick born for egg-laying breeds in the entire country? But we do. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty bad situation. So yeah, we finished with these questions. So uh, chickens are in the worst, the egg layers uh, getting it worse than the, uh, than the meat birds. But of course, there's a lot fewer animals killed. So you have to weigh you know, that occasion. One, you know, one bird's going to give you, we have in the whole country, we have 290 million some laying hens uh, each year. Uh, but 9 billion birds raised for meat. So the meat birds suffer a little less, but there's a lot more of them. Pigs then would suffer um, the most the next. And it turns out the beef industry, which strangely has the worst reputation in some ways, which I think is because of environmentalists, is actually where you have um, the easiest place to get high welfare uh, uh, animal products. So again there, the dairy cows have it a lot worse than the beef cows because they are constantly impregnated and you know a bunch of stuff we won't get into. Uh, unless you're real curious. Um, but the beef cows, this is a little bit of the good news, you have a significant portion of the beef industry which never went industrial. And even the parts of the beef industry which industrialized, it's the end of the animal's life. So for about a year, a beef cow is out on the range, doing its thing, having a pretty good life, and then for its last six months, it's brought into basically a, a factory farm type setting. It's brought into a feedlot where it's crowded into a kind of dusty environment and fed a very high fat diet because we like the taste much better. They put on weight very quickly, so that's part of the advantage, uh, but they also, you get that kind of fat ribbling through the uh, flesh and we, we like that taste and you can do that by feeding them corn. So, you know, I, I uh, grew up very fond of um, uh, New York uh, cold cuts. My grandmother was in Brooklyn and whenever she'd come out to Chicago, she'd always bring tongue and pastrami and corned beef. So corned beef uh, is doing that uh, feedlot process but in an intensive way so that you get a lot of that, sh that striping, a lot of that kind of fat. But that is done to most beef cattle. So the feedlot's pretty bad, but you can buy 100% uh, grass-fed beef. So that 100% is important. You look for grass-fed beef, that's a marketing gimmick. It means absolutely nothing. 100% grass-fed beef means no feedlot. So it means that animal lived its life on a range, probably. <laughs> There's some exceptions. There, you, know, you still got to pay attention to what certifier uh, you're using. Does cage-free mean anything? Cage-free means they are not in a cage. That is literally what it means. So, so they can still be confined to a small yeah. Yeah, so, cage, so if the only thing you see on an egg carton is cage-free, what it means is they're crammed into a big building, but they're not in cages. And it's honestly unclear how much better that is. Now, there are pastured systems where the birds are given proper access to the outdoors and so forth, and those systems, I would say, are better welfare. Still a lot of problems, but better welfare. If the only promise they're making is cage-free, I'm not even sure it's better. Yeah. You're talking mostly about right now about in relation to food. Let's talk about animals not in relation to food. Mm -hmm. okay. Let's talk about when you say bugs or whatever, you have flooding, you have disease, they carry diseases. You can't just, there's no justification as to eradicate those animals. This is the last question. Yeah, no, there are conflicts. I want to perfectly honor that there are conflicts. What, what I can tell you is... New York City has a, a, a tremendous rodent problem. <laughs> rodents do well in New York, yeah. Yes, they do. They do very well. Yeah. Well, now we only, well, not only have rodents, we have, what else do we have there? 
so invasive, inva there's actually, a, 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 if, if, you, if uh, any of you make it. Pigeons in the plains. Sure. Beasts in the plains. All of those. Yeah, yeah. What, what I can say is those of us who are working in either animal welfare, which typically means rescue the dog and have a hamburger afterwards, or working in animal rights, which means rescue the dog and have a vegan meal afterwards, in either of those communities, people aren't worrying and aren't concerned with when you have genuine human-animal conflict. When you have gen genuine human-animal conflict, it's a tough situation, and you know, uh, we may be a little more squeamish about it, um, but you know, there's not anybody protesting that I'm aware of. I mean, there may be somebody, nobody with resources or nobody re recognized by the mainstream animal rights or protection movement is worrying about those things. So those are conflicts where even you know, if I had Ingrid Newkirk here, the president of PETA, she'd say, yeah, sometimes you gotta you know, deal with the rats. But for all the rest of the situations where we don't have to do it in entertainment and clothing and food, if it's not necessary, that's where the animal rights and animal protection uh, world are, are speaking about. So it's not to say, it's not, uh, the animal rights and animal welfare movement do not end up having an anti-kill perspective. No, no, it's, 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 it's consistent in principle. Because it's take, let's go back to that Jewish teaching. Right, which I think is helpful. Rule book is not a good rule. You go by it or you don't go by it. Um, which route do you follow? No, no. I think it's I think it's in that wisdom of what counts as a legitimate human interest, and we want to have some consistent criteria, right? So I have my consistent. Sounds like Mary and I have kind of relatively consistent criteria for how we draw that line, which does allow me to say, yeah, there are there are cases where my interest in like living among other human beings and the city requires a certain amount of extermination so yeah I can't avoid being a part of that system you know maybe if everybody cared about this issue we might come up with alternatives but I don't see them so where there's hard conflicts between humans and animals uh, animal rights animal welfare people are ready to acknowledge that and say let's reduce the harm what we're, where we're challenging society and where you know, it can be uh, you know, upsetting and, and pushing is that it turns out eating animals is really not required. Or yeah, I, that's, yeah, saying it's not necessary would be saying the same thing. And in fact, to speak really quickly to, tell me your name again, yeah. Pam. You know, Pam's question, in fact, the overwhelming evidence is showing us that we are hurting our own bodies because of the amounts of animals uh, we are consuming and we pretty much you know, I'm, uh, you shouldn't trust anything I say about nutrition because I have you know, no credentials to speak to you about that. I, I've read enough to have, you know, I think, helpful opinions. But there are good, there are good sources out there. Uh, there's a book called The China Study, which I highly recommend. It's, you know, there's newer books that have been out. But it's, the, it's a study talking about the Dr. Uh, Esselstyn, not an animal person. Uh, was an Olympic athlete, major uh, surgeon, uh, and got interested in the links between nutrition and health. They, he was with uh, Cornell University. He worked to do the largest nutrition study ever done in the world. And what he was absolutely confident he was going to find was that all of these problems associated with eating meat had to do with, with too much meat. Right? So what he expected to find is once you got the animal products below a certain threshold, there would be no health problems. But that's not what he found. What he found was the more you reduce the animal products, the less cancer, the less heart disease, the less stroke, the less diabetes, less obesity, all the way down to zero. So that pretty much animal products, as we currently experience them in the modern world, um, are against our health. So it's this issue 
uh, that makes the food issue so important and why it gets so much attention. <laughs> it so, may be. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.